All right, well, good morning. We're going to start off with a quick announcement before we get into our, our message. So next Sunday, things are going to look a little different when you come in here. There's going to be a bunch of tables set up in the lobby because we're having a, a music, prayer, and brunch Sunday. So if you've been with us for a while, the last uh, really couple of years, we've been having these periodic worship, music, and prayer mornings where we just basically sing and pray for the entire morning. And we're going to continue to do that at least occasionally, maybe quarterly or so, just have a, a music and prayer Sunday. Um, but we decided to, to mix it up and experiment a little bit, and we're going to add a meal onto that as well. And so next Sunday, we're going to sing, we're going to pray, we're going to have a slightly shortened service, it'll be about an hour, and then after that, we are going to eat some pancakes and, um, and some, some other tasty food as well. So um, we'll, we'll be doing that next Sunday. There's still going to be children's ministry. Um, you can certainly keep your kids in the service the, the whole time if you want, but we will uh, dismiss kids probably about 15 minutes into the service, and there'll be ch- children's ministry then as well. Um, but come, don't, don't eat a big breakfast before you come next Sunday. All right, let's get into the book of James now. We are in James chapter 1, and uh, this is our third week into the book of James. We've really been enjoying it so far. We're going to read verses 19 through 27 this morning, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to that passage if you're using a house Bible. It's on page 1011. And the last couple of weeks, you know, both John and Perry uh, shared with us about James and gave us a little bit of the background and, and really how, how James writes through the Holy Spirit and, and how this book is a little different than a lot of the other books that we have in the New Testament. I would say this is a bit of a unique letter. And uh, James writes, you, you might say, with less, um, you know, of, of this obvious, profound, deep theology that Paul often gives us. It has much more of a feel of, it's kind of like Proverbs, of these, these short, punchy, direct, sometimes very convicting statements of practical wisdom. And we see that in James. And, and that, that is true, that, that James does have that feel of, of Proverbs almost. There, there are, are many, many topics that he covers, and he gives us a lot of practical wisdom in those topics. However, I do think there is, is more theological undergirding, and there are more uh, common threads and themes that run through James than we notice at first glance. So for example, one common theme or something that James emphasizes throughout the letter is, is the Word of God. Okay, the Word of God. Let me read the last verse of last week's passage. This is verse 18. Of his own will, God's own will, he brought us forth by the Word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so James is saying here, God initiated in some way, and he spoke. He spoke his word, and that word had a power, brought us forth. It, it, it saved us. His word, his, his very words that he speaks, that he reveals to us, they have this saving power, this transforming power. They have the power to save us initially, to justify us. They also have the power to continue to save us, to sanctify us. And James emphasizes this power of the word. In today's passage, we're going to read in just a moment, 
we also have this verse, verse 21. It says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So similar, similarly, he says here, receive the word that God speaks, that God implants in your souls. It has this power to, to save. I think much of what James writes, he is, he, he is writing to, to encourage us to walk in certain patterns that allow us to receive that implanted word that allow us really to relate to God. So this is not just a collection of disconnected practical wisdom, but it is, it is a, a, an encouragement to know God, to relate to him, to walk in his ways in, in such a way that draws us closer to him. So with that in mind, we're going to go through what could be described as three distinct topics today, but they all bring us back to who God is and help us to relate to him more closely. And so we're going to take each of these topics one by one. We're going to read a paragraph at a time. I'm going to read a paragraph and then make some comments on it and then go to the second and the third paragraphs. And so we're going to start with this first paragraph, James 1, 19 through 21. And it says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. All right, so in this first paragraph, you know, James speaks of, of, of our speech. There would be quick to listen, but slow to speak. And he, he, he talks about wickedness and avoiding this wickedness and then, of course, receiving the implanted word but I think one of the central, central topics that he's going after right, right here is anger. He's going to talk about anger here. And I wanted to spend a few minutes on anger this morning because I think anger is something that many of us struggle with, perhaps more than we realize and more than we would care to admit. Okay, I think anger can be... a a pretty big issue in many of our lives. So we're going to talk about anger. Now, if we're going to talk about anger, we might first ask, well, is anger bad? Okay, should, should we think of anger as, as, as sin? Is anger always bad? And, and we could go to a few places that indicate, well, well, anger is not necessarily sin. So for example, Jesus got angry. There's the classic story of, his, of him driving out the money changers from the temple courts. He probably even did it twice. Where he flipped over the tables. He fashioned a whip and he started driving people out of the temple courts. And we can say that Jesus was angry in, in that case. Also, this verse that we just read, verse 19 in James 1, says to be slow to anger. It doesn't necessarily say don't be angry, but it says to take your time in getting there. Also, there's this famous verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, and it's a little bit of a difficult verse to translate, so you'll see it worded differently in different versions, but it says, be angry and do not sin. And that seems to, to clearly separate anger and sin, that they're not necessarily the same thing. 
And so I think we can conclude that, yes, anger and sin are not necessarily the same. There may be times that anger is very, very appropriate. I think we can conclude that. However, I am going to say that most of our anger is probably not appropriate. And usually, it's not that beneficial. And a lot of times, we, um, we inappropriately justify our anger. After all, we could go to a few of these, these, these verses. And in this one in, in James that we just read, it says, yes, be slow to anger. And then it says, for the, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Okay, so it is cautioning us against our, our, our anger that's not going to get us what we think it's going to get. And so we, we've got to be very careful here. And we're going to come back to that verse in a minute. And then the verse in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil and so, it, on one hand, it separates sin and anger, but it also really cautions us against prolonged anger, anger that persists. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And if you do, you are, are giving Satan himself an opportunity in your life. And we could go to some other places. A few verses later, in Ephesians 4, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And similarly in Colossians 3, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then in Galatians, where, where it speaks of the fruits of the Spirit, it first speaks of the works of the flesh, It says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, although anger may not necessarily be sin, we should be very, very careful when we feel ourselves getting angry. And I wanted to take some time on this because, like I said earlier, I think, I think many of us struggle with this. Um, I think I do. I think most, most people that know me would, would, not, would not call me an angry person. Okay, would not, um, probably have not experienced uh, a, a clear expression of anger from me. Um, and that's and so I, I, I generally don't don't express that. I, I don't yell at my wife. I don't um, throw and kick things out of anger. Um, I've been tempted. We have this closet um, as you walk in our front door. There's actually two closets, and um, one closet is full of like winter gear, like coats and gloves and hats, and um, it's a complete disaster. Like all the time, no matter how much order I try to bring to it, it something happens. My my kids sneak down in the middle of the night, and they rearrange things. I'm pretty sure. And to make it worse, these these uh, these closets they're they're those sort of accordion type closets that pull in and out, and one of them sort of broken and warped, and and it comes off of its railing. 
sort of frequently. And so it's already a disaster. It's this closet of despair. And then you go to open it and the door comes off. And someday I may put my foot through that door. And if I do, it will be a righteous anger. <laughs> but typically, I, I don't... I, I don't struggle with that, that sort of explosive anger. However, I, um, I, I, I have had to admit in recent years that although that's not generally true of me, there has been this, this sort of underlying, low-level, persistent, what I think I could call anger in my life, where there, there can be consistent just frustration, irritation, where, where there have been different offenses that have accumulated over my lifetime, and I haven't always been able to just release those, and they, they persist. And although it may not express itself in this really explosive way, it's there underneath the surface consistently, and it steals so much joy and life. And even if I'm not yelling at people, I may be short with them or I may just, just um, ignore or be distracted or keep people at arm's length, not engage with them because I think that low-level frustration is there. It's just there consistently in my life. And it is stealing something from me. It's also not accomplishing what I think it should. You know, that might be the... The, the key point, one of the key points, at least, that James is making here, going back to verse 20, he says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's easy to trick yourself into thinking, my anger is going to do something. Okay, this frustration, it's going to accomplish something. It's kind of like worry. Remember in Matthew 6 where Jesus warns us against worry? And he says, you know, it's not even going to add a single hour to your life. It's not going to do anything for you. But we think it will. And it's sort of the same thing with anger. Like, if, if I can continue to go through these conversations in my mind that I imagine having with the people that frustrate with me, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to do something good for me. Okay, I, I, there, somehow I'm going to get justice through this stewing and festering. Okay, that's what, what I convince myself, I think, in my heart, that this is going to work. And James is saying, it's not. It's not going to produce the righteousness of God. And if we're after, after God's growing salvation, his goodness, his re- relationship with him, we, we must understand it's not going to get us there like we think it will. Now, if we do struggle with anger, even if it's not real expressive anger, um, we, we might ask, well, then what do we do about it? And that's a long series of sermons, definitely. And, um, and it's oftentimes very individual, and so we're not going to go into that this morning. But what I, I wanted to convince us of this morning is to not dismiss our, our anger so, so quickly. Do not dismiss it as something that's inconsequential. Okay, that if you feel yourself struggling with that, to take it very, very seriously to admit that, yeah, this is something that, that's in my life, and then to take at least the first step of trying to process that. And that probably means talking to somebody, 
just simply, I mean, that's the first step. Simply acknowledging to somebody that you trust, hey, you know what, I think this is an issue here. Even though I don't, you know, explode that often, I think this is an issue here, and I'd love for you to pray with me through it, and I'd love to just bounce some ideas off of you. I think that's important. And so, you're going to be slow to anger, recognizing that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Hey, let's go to the next paragraph, and we're going to read James 1, 22 through 25. This is one of the more familiar uh, sections in James. Verse 22 might be the most famous verse in James. It says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So again, a famous passage here, encouraging us to be doers of the word. And this is, is what, what James is really emphasizing throughout the book, a simple obedience, a simple responsiveness. When God speaks, that there's an effect, that we respond to what he speaks. We are to be doers of the word. So let's, let's tease this out a little bit. Let's first just look at the analogy that he uses. He speaks of this man looking in a mirror and then forgetting what he looks like. And he's comparing this to, to hearing and not doing. And so what's, what's he getting across with this analogy? Well, well, what's a mirror for? First of all, we can ask that. What, what do we use a mirror for? Now, of course, we have many more mirrors uh, now than when James wrote, um, and we can use uh, mirrors much more vainly, I would say, just because we have so much access to them. But a mirror primarily, I don't think, is just for gazing at our own beauty. A mirror is to, to take a look at yourself and to see if anything's out of place, and then to make the proper adjustments. Okay, you go into the, the bathroom and you look at the mirror and, and you see, is, is there something in my teeth? Or is there something off? Is there even something wrong? Is, is my, does my eye look bloodshot? And do I need to address that? And is there, there um, some treatment that I need to go through? Or whatever it might be. You're looking at the mirror just to make sure things are, are generally in order and presentable and there's nothing too wrong. And he's... He's saying, he, or he's illustrating that, that there can be a situation where you go and you look, even intently look at your face in the mirror, and then you go away and you forget what you look like and there's nothing done about what you look like. You know, I'm, um, I'm raising three boys, and it gets a little better as they get into the teen years, <clears throat> but leading up to that time, it's like they, they go into the, the bathroom and then they come out and say, hey, buddy, um, did you take a glance in the mirror at all? <laughs> you know, because there may be some things that you, you, want, you want to give some attention to here. Okay, because, you know, their hair's in a thousand different, different directions and, and, um, and there's, you know, there's still last night's dinner on their chin and, you know, things like this and, you say, okay, let's, let's, let's work on this. Let's go back to the mirror and take a look. And they probably did 
take a look in the mirror. They spent some time there. They looked intently, but, you know, it was to see if they could touch their ear with their tongue or, you know, something like that. <laughs> and they didn't really take a good look and say, okay, this, I need to use this opportunity with the mirror to make the appropriate adjust, adjustments to my appearance and go on with my, my day. That's sort of what he's getting at here. Okay, we, we don't use that mirror to, to adjust and to, to, um, to do to our, our appearance what, what needs to be done. And so we miss, miss that. And of course, that is very much like what we do with the Word of God. Much of the purpose of the Word of God, in addition to just, of course, revealing who God is, is to reveal who we are and to allow us to take a look into our, our hearts. It, it certainly is a mirror for us. Let's go to Hebrews 4.12. This is, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, God's, word are, God's, God's words are powerful in how they reflect what's inside of us. They do penetrate and they, they, they discern what's going on inside of ourselves, even if we don't, don't really know. We don't even understand ourselves. But God's word has this incredible power to reveal and expose and help us understand what's going on inside of our, our, ourselves. And so... We, we use the word to reflect what's happening inside and outside of ourselves, and then we make the appropriate adjustments. And if we don't do that, it's interesting. He, he says we're deceiving ourselves. If we're being hearers and not doers, we're deceiving ourselves. And isn't this easy? Isn't this easy to do? Probably especially for modern Western Christians who have a lot of access to different resources and a lot of access to knowledge, and that's such a blessing. I think we should use those resources. We should pursue uh, that, that knowledge even more than we do. And yet it's really easy to assume that I have accumulated this knowledge, and therefore I'm good. We can deceive ourselves in that way. But in, in, in reality... God's word was meant to reveal something and then to be acted upon. And I hope that as we're going through James, not just in this passage, but he, he certainly revisits this idea throughout the book, is that we can grow in our, our sensitivities there, our sensitivity to the spirit as we read the word of God, that we would approach it with a certain expectation. We would expect God is going to tell me, prompt me to do something. So when I open up this, this book in the morning when I read it or when I come on a Sunday morning, can we come with that expectation? God is going to tell me something. And he's not just going to tell me something to um, merely share knowledge with me. He's going to tell me something that he would want me to act on. I want to be looking for that. And then, then have this willingness and eagerness to actually go do it. And our hope, I think, as, we've, as we go through this, this book, is that we would grow in that sort of responsiveness. Okay, I'm not just going to read, read these words. I'm going to read them, and I'm going to be ready to act upon them. 
Another encouragement, I think, in that that we find at the end of this passage is that as we do, we will be blessed in our doing. And so when we walk in what God, God commands us to walk in, when we just simply obey him, we should understand that he, he acts when, when we do that. Sometimes we read the word and we, we feel prompted to do something, but we know it's going to be hard and it's going to be awkward and we're not sure if, it, if we're going to be able to carry it out that well. But we have this promise here that we will be blessed in our doing. Again, God initiates something. He does something when we act out of obedience. He blesses those actions. Okay. Let's, um, let's go to our, our final paragraph here and read the last two verses, verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does, does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. <clears throat> All right, so, so James just uh, told us to do. He don't, just, don't just hear, he told us to do. Now he's going to explain a little bit what that doing looks like. What, what, what should our doing actually look like? He uses the word religion here three times. This, is, this word is used very infrequently in the New Testament. It's used three times here, right here in these couple verses. It's only used twice in the entire rest of the New Testament, both sort of negatively. Um, the, the word religion just isn't, isn't really a New Testament word that much, except here when James is encouraging us to do. He's saying there should be some kind of effect from your faith if, you, if, if there's real, genuine, authentic faith, there should be an effect. There should be an outward effect. There should be a religion in that sense that comes out of that. And so he's going to define that religion some. Now first, before he gets to defining it and telling us what, what that doing might look like, he's going to give us a warning. He's going to tell us something that's going to get in the way of that pure and undefiled religion that really honors God. And it's this, not bridling the tongue. Okay? If, anyone does not, if, we, if, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Okay, so bridling the tongue. Bridles used on a horse to, to direct, to keep it from being wild and, and reckless and out of control. And in a similar way, James says, your, your tongue must be, be bridled. Okay. Now this um, sort of harkens back to Proverbs, as James often does, the book of Proverbs. J James, as I said earlier, has a similar feel to the book of Proverbs. And many of his statements in here just seem like they're, they're out, of, out of Proverbs, and this would be, be similar. Um, we could go back to the book of Proverbs and see several statements about our speech, about our tongues, and, um, and, and the restraint that should be on our tongues. I'll give you some examples. In Proverbs 13, 3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Or Proverbs 17, 27, whoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. 
In Proverbs 21, 23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Now, this does not mean that, 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 that we should not use our words. Proverbs, there are a bunch of Proverbs also that speak of the blessing that can come through appropriately spoken words. However, there's just an emphasis on, on restraining or, or, or using words very thoughtfully. There's, there's somewhat of a caution that is encouraged in Proverbs and in James about the use of our words. And, and it's pretty strong here um, in that he says, if, if you think you're religious, he's going to describe what that religion looks like, but if you, you are, are um, walking in these, these good, God-honoring religious principles, but your words are reckless and hurtful, he says your religion is worthless. Pretty strong there. Um, again, he's talking about, he, he's saying you're, you, you uh, are, are deceiving yourself. If you think that you're religious, that you are, are living out God-honoring principles, and yet have, have a recklessness with your tongue, so you're, you're deceiving yourself. It's actually not, not really working. Okay, your religion is, is worthless if there's not a bridling of your tongue. Now, James is going to get into this in much greater depth in chapter 3. There's a more extended passage on the tongue, and it's kind of a hard one. You might not want to come to church on that Sunday. It's <laughs> going to be convicting. But he touches on it here because he's saying, um, if, if this is in the way, this is, this is going to prevent, this is going to hinder doing as God wants you to do. Okay, authentic, God-honoring religion also means bridling your tongue. He's just going to tell us that before he defines what that pure religion is. But then he does define it. And he, he tells us what this, this pure, undefiled religion looks like. And he, he simply says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. It's interesting. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction, that's what he highlights as pure religion. Now, this is not the totality of God-honoring religion. Of course, we need to take into account the rest of the Bible and, and understand what, what God is encouraging us to do. But this is how James summarizes it. And so although this may, may not be all of it, you could say it might be at least this, that our religion, if it comes from a genuine faith, should be flavored with these kinds of actions and this kind of attitude. Where, where there's a care for those that are, are in need in some way, that are dependent in some way. Okay, to, that, that are afflicted in some way. Caring for those people is, is much of the expression of true religion that God is after. And this is not new. James isn't the first one that speaks this, of course. And we see this heart of God throughout the Bible again. Let's just, just take one example from Isaiah chapter 58. And this, this is another place where, where God is um, he's, he's speaking to a people who pursue certain religious practices 
They are very obvious. They're outwardly religious. Um, But he rebukes them here because they are, are prioritizing certain religious practices but neglecting more important religious practices. And so here's what he says. He says, fasting like yours this day. He's talking about fasting. These people fasted. Okay? And fasting is a good thing. As, as Christians, I think we should fast. But these people had, had prioritized fasting to agree where they were neglecting um, other more important things. And he says, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. So this is an emphasis. This is because it reveals God's heart. This is, this is God's heart towards the world. And so if we have genuine faith and we're walking in certain outward religious practices, this is the kind of thing that should flavor those practices. Okay, a concern for Orphans, for widows, for the imprisoned, for the naked, for the hungry, for the broken, for the lonely. A, a concern for those people should flavor our, our religion. Um, and so, as, as James is speaking of this, and he's talking about doing, okay, not just hearing, but doing, this is what he's encouraging. And this, I, I think, is such a good, good check on us and a good check on our hearts. Remember, as we come into um, hearing the word, we're coming in with a, a, a responsiveness, that kind of attitude, an expectation. God's going to tell me something, and he may prompt me to act. I think this, this idea is a good, good idea to have in mind as we're considering what, what might he be prompting me in. Now, that doesn't mean that I, I, I have to start some big new program. Um, I, I have to, you know, go find a, specifically an orphan or something like that. But I think it should just stir our thinking and, and help us to consider, okay, am I, am I looking around at my circle? And, and am I considering those that may just have some sort of lack in their life? And am I taking steps to try to support and encourage those people? That may look very different for, for, for each one of us. But I think we, we should be prompted to consider that. So, James wants us to receive the implanted word of God. He wants us to relate to God. He wants us to walk together with God. Um, but he, he warns us of a couple things that will prevent that walking with God. He warns us against anger, and he warns us against reckless speech. And we might consider, okay, are those things present in my life, and do I need to take steps to address those? And then he encourages us a heart of responsiveness to be doers of the word, and then specifically, 
he says to care for the afflicted, for those in need. And we should examine our lives and say, okay, am I walking in those kinds of patterns? Band, you can go ahead and come on back up. We are going to transition now and we are going to take communion together. And I think this is fitting because in communion, we, we remember Jesus. I think we remember specifically that God's heart is the heart that we just described in pure and undefiled religion. That God comes for those who are afflicted and needy and dependent because we are completely dependent on him. We cannot save ourselves. Okay, we cannot pay the penalty that we owed. And so Jesus said, I will come do it for you. And I will pay the death penalty that you owe so that can be removed from you and you can be free to come into the presence of God. And so that's what he did. So in communion, he just gives us this little act, this religious act, to, to remember that. To remember that he died, that his body was broken, his blood was poured out so that I could be with him forever. So for all of those, for all those of us who, who have, have received that, who have come to that saving faith, this is a, a consistent reminder so that we can simply remember, oh yeah, God did that. Jesus came for me and I can walk with him now. So there are the, the, the elements in the little cups in, in front of you in the pew. If you uh, need a, a gluten-free option. There are, are people can come around. Just stick your your hand up, and they'll they'll offer that that for you. And um, and we're just 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 take a moment and reflect on on the pure and undefiled religion that Jesus demonstrated when he came for us needy, dependent people. And after you reflected on that, thanked him for it, you can take the bread and the cup. And we'll continue to worship. All right, why don't you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you've spoken these words and they are yours. We hear directly from our God. We're so grateful for those words and and, and God, we just want to receive them and and, and to to know them and to love them. But I, I also pray that you would prompt us to do and God, that each time we read your words, you would, you would convict, you would help us to see open doors and opportunities that you create for us, and that you would make us an obedient people. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.